Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, our text tonight. Father, we ask You to bless us tonight as we study this, this large section of Scripture. We pray that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Uh, we pray, Father, for insight to be our reward tonight for diligence and perseverance and tenaciousness and time, Father, when it comes to the study of Your Word. We seek Your blessing, Father, to, to discern it and, and, and to be sanctified by it and to have the parameters or the, the horizons of our wisdom to be expanded and, and moved further out into the distance, Father, as we live life as Your people, not just as a human being, but as a human being that recognizes that we are created in Your image and that You have created the entire heavens and the earth and You are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to You. And we are grateful, Father, for all of the ways that You draw us unto You. That You have not just saved us, Father, but You have saved us unto Yourself. Made us Your Father, we Your children, to hear our prayers, to fulfill every promise in Christ, to redeem us out of slavery, Father, to, to, to find uh, in us, Father, Your joy as we find in You our inexpressible joy. And for all of these things to be true and for all of these things to be real in Christ. We're grateful, Father, because You have given meaning to our life and significant purpose and direction. Thank You for all these great blessings and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last couple of years in our Insight seminars, especially those that have dealt with the New Testament letters, uh, you'll remember that, uh, that the, the professors, uh, the teachers have talked about the epistolary styles, that there were ways that you would write a letter, and they were common throughout the ancient world. In the ancient world of Paul, there were rules about how to write a letter, like they are in our world today. One of the ancient Roman writers, a philosopher and a, a statesman by the name of Cicero, instructed those that would write letters that one was never to introduce a God into the letter unless the situation was dire. Now, we don't know if Paul knew of Cicero's instruction or not. He was assassinated about 50 years or so. He was in 44 B.C. when he was assassinated. So about maybe 50 years or so before the time of Paul. Don't know if, if Paul knew of Cicero's instructions. What we do know is that Paul sees the human dilemma as being so dire that he ha can't help but introduce God because there is no other way. There's no other exit out of the darkness. No exit out of the sin. No exit out of the idolatry. There is no, there's no way out from under God's wrath except through God's work in Christ. God's faithfulness is the only answer. Now, I want, what I want to do is kind of recap the last couple of weeks before we go on uh, tonight. And, and we'll do this very quickly. Uh, what we're going to do is just see how God's righteousness and faithfulness to covenant is seen in some succinct, succinct statements from the text we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. The first is, no human is righteous or faithful. 
We are the sinners. We are the ones that break covenant. We are the ones that suppress the knowledge of God. We exchange it for a lie. Even when we understand that that is a a depraved lifestyle and, and say, yes, that is not the right way to live, we will still try to do it on our own terms. No human is righteous or faithful. Only God is righteous and faithful. God is righteous in His actions and God is righteous in His character. He is righteous in the very core of His being and He is righteous in the sense that He is faithful to every promise and every covenant that He has made to human beings. Humans, therefore, are only going to be made righteous through Jesus Christ. That is the only way that humans are going to be made righteous in the eyes of God. And it's Jesus Christ Himself who redeems humans through the shedding of His blood, what we saw in... in, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 this morning. Thus, God is just because He's not just overlooking sin, but sin is being punished. But He is also the justifier. His wrath is being removed or is being drawn back from those of faith because of their faith and what it is that Christ has accomplished. And then this gift or this grace can only be received through faith. Now, now Paul has made his point. He's made his point. But you know as well as I do that idols die hard. Idols die hard. You also know that changing a worldview or changing a, 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 a way of thinking about God or thinking about God in light of everybody else around you is not always easy. And that's why Paul is going to continue on this trajectory. Now, one of the things that Paul has done from the very beginning of this book is to insist that what he's teaching... That this gospel is something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's not something new. It's something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the what? Holy Scriptures. Chapter 3, verse 21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, what he's going to do is rely on their knowledge of the Old Testament. And what he's going to do is to pull out a couple of characters, primarily Abraham, to make his case. He's going to underscore his case with the life of Abraham. Now, you know as well as I do, there are a lot of great people in the Old Testament. You can start with Abraham, but then you can go to Isaac, and you can go to Joseph, and you can go to Jacob, and you can go to Moses. You can, you can go to, to David. You can go to Solomon. You can go to, to, uh, uh, to, to Josiah. You can go to the prophets. Why does he choose to underscore his case with Abraham? Well, the first is this. He is the father of Israel. Recognized as such. In the blessings and the the, the circumcision that came to him in Genesis chapter 17, he is the father of Israel. Isaiah says something very intriguing about Abraham. He says, Isaiah 51 verses 1 and 2, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. There's our word again. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to whom? Abraham, your father. So not only was he considered to be the father of of Israel, he was also a favored friend to God. Going back to Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my what? My friend. Now, he is the father of Israel. He is the one that has supplied the DNA for the, the nation of Israel. He is not just any leader. He is not just any world leader. But he is a friend of God. He is somebody that God 
according to Scripture, has looked down upon in favor. But then thirdly, it was thought and it was taught very much by the rabbis that he was blessed for his works. Now primarily this goes to Genesis chapter 2 and in Hebrew the, the idea of the binding of, of, of Isaac or the Akedah. And in Genesis chapter 22, and you know the story, we won't, we won't go over it here, but in Genesis 22 verse 16, God is saying, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And it was taught at that point by the rabbis that this is, this is how you find blessing with God or how you find righteousness with God is by obeying God. And this is where Paul is going to depart and actually say the, the rabbis have gotten it wrong. Judaism has gotten it wrong. This is not the way that Abraham is seen in Scripture. So, understanding Abraham rightly, a couple of things. Number one, Abraham did not boast about works. We talked about that word, kakomai, uh, this morning. That sounds like the rooster and the boasting that it sounds like that the rooster does early, early in the morning. Look at me. Pay attention to me. It's a word that was used to, to describe what what uh, soldiers on the battlefield would do after a battle. Look what I've conquered. Look at what I've accomplished. And so Abraham is not, contrary to common opinion, did not boast about his works. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and, and then verse 5, which is one of the most important verses, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, does not work, get that in our mind, does not work, but, what's the next word? Trust. Let's say it together as a church. Trusts. One who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now that verse 5 is key who does not work but trusts God. And the pivotal story in Abraham's life that he's referring to is found in Genesis 15 and the promise of a son. We alluded to it this morning, but Paul is also going to bring David in before he kind of picks up on the story again back in, in, in chapter 4 at the end of verse 17. And there he's going to say, I have made you, or as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, when you read Romans chapter 4, verse 17, what you begin to see is that what we're talking about here is a lot more than just intellectual acknowledgement that there's a God. What is being referred to here is as, as, as Paul has kind of traveled over David and a couple of other things he's going to say to get kind of to his first point about the promise of this son and how it was credited through Abraham's faith or through his, his belief to him as righteousness. He is not just talking about the fact that Abraham said, yeah, you know what, I think there's a God. And I, you know, I think that he's probably pretty powerful and I think that probably he, is, uh, he lives forever. No. He is the Father in the sight of God in whom He believed, seeing this, knowing this, perceiving this, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And so here's Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, he shows up after this descriptive narrative in, verse, in chapters uh, 3 through 11 of how sin has entered into the world and it has spread like this terrible corruption, this terrible pollution, and is corrupting everything. 
We have not just trust in God, but then we have murder. And we have not just murder, but we have injustice. And not just injustice, but we have such dire, incredible wickedness that God is going to destroy and start all over again with one righteous man and his family. But it doesn't take very long before you have the Tower of Babel. And what you have is people building this tower so that they can get mano a mano, face to face with God. And it just looks like the world is going to come unhinged and God's good creation is just going to dismantle itself because of sin. But then Genesis 12, it's just a completely different story. It just changes on a dime. God calls Abraham. And He calls this this fellow by the name of Abram, before he was changed his name to Abraham, to leave his home and to leave his heart, to leave his family, and, and, (coughs) and to go to a land that God would show him. Now, he didn't know where he was going, didn't have a GPS, did not have a map. All we know is that Abraham, one day, God met with him and said, I want, to, I want you to leave all of this and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And God makes these tremendous promises to Abraham that he'll make him a great nation and that he will bless him greatly and that he will make his name great and he will make Abraham a blessing and he'll curse those that curse you and bless those that bless you and all the people of the earth, everyone, all the people are going to be blessed through you. Now, this may be a, a, a difficult statement. But you know, obedience is sometimes easier than trust. Children obey you easily when they agree with you. Where the obedience becomes very, very difficult is when they're not sure whether or not they should trust you or not. Obedience seems to be easier than trust as long as Abraham is in agreement with what it is that God is calling him to do. But Abraham is going to struggle. It's not just going to be an easy life for him, even though God is blessing him and protecting him. Abraham struggles with the whole son issue, the infertility issue. And he says, how can I be this great nation if I can't even bring forth a son? At some point, Abraham is struggling with what he sees of God. Do I see God calling into being things that are not? Do I see God giving life to the dead and making things that are out of things that are not? And quite frankly, that's not only the battlefield of faith for Abraham, that's the battlefield for Mark and for all of us, I think. And, and this is chapter 12. We now get to chapter 15 and God comes to him in chapter 15 and says very eloquently, he says, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, Abraham has to think about that. What does it mean for me not to be afraid because you, God, are my shield and you, God, are my very great reward? Well, I think it means something like this. God says to Abraham, you never have to be afraid that I will ever, ever, ever fail you. You never have to be afraid that I will not be faithful to you. You do not have to be afraid that you will be unprotected or unprovided for. Abraham, you never have to be afraid 
then I will fail you. And God says that He's going to bless Abraham with the son. And He says, let me take you by the hand and take you out in this evening as the, suns are be- the, the stars are beginning to pop out in the sky. And He says, all of your descendants are going to be like these stars in the sky. And it's a crossroad moment, not just for Abraham, but for the world. Because as Paul begins to tell the story at the end of chapter 4, where he catches up with it again, he says, you know, Abraham looks at his own body and he knows his age and he knows what human conventional wisdom says about fertility, mortality rates and all of these kinds of things. And he looks at the body of his wife, Sarah, and he, he knows that she's, she's way past those childbearing years. The only way it can happen is if God does it. Only way. And so Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 4, he's fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. But we have to ask ourselves, is that really? I mean, you just there's a fact that you believe about God? And that's how it's credited to you as righteousness? He knows that God can call into being things that are not. He knows that He has the power to call to life things that are dead. Verse 20, I believe, is the key. The verse right before it. He did not waver through what? Unbelief regarding the promise of God. Somebody can have power. So, so somebody can have your best interests in their heart. Best intentions in the world. I think about my marriage to Ellen. One of the greatest disappointments in, in my own life, in my own self, is that I'm, as not, I'm not as good a husband as I want to be, or as that she deserves, obviously, but that, that, as I want to be. I, I always want to follow through on everything. I always want to meet every need. And I have the power to do it. But sometimes the wherewithal is not there. The difference between God as God and Mark as husband is that he never fails on a promise. And that's what it is that Abraham sees. He sees more than God's ability to do it. He sees God's intent to fulfill and that is, you know, Abraham is able to see the righteousness and the faithfulness of God. And that's what he puts his trust in. He puts his trust in that. That word, hey, God has said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Let me take you outside. See all the stars? Your descendants, more than that. Just believe. And Abraham reckons that the word that was powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth was a word powerful enough to trust when it came to a promise. Now, Abraham's not going to be perfect. Abraham and Sarah, along with David, and every other person that is lifted up as a person of faith are going to sin and they're going to fall short of the glory of God. But in their most beautiful moment, their most sublime moment, They are going to trust God with everything they have. And so Paul says in verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. 
the words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul doesn't stop there. He, he, he doesn't stop with the fact that Abraham did not boast about works. He says Abraham did not trust in circumcision, which was another problem. The Jewish nation saw circumcision as a sign of membership in God's chosen people. This happens, I'm in. Because this has happened to me, I'm in. Because I possess this trait on my body, I'm in. It was a reminder from the very beginning, that they, were be, that they were called to be a special people and different from all the peoples around them. The problem came when circumcision, though, became the way in and not God. The problem came when circumcision displaced trust in God. Now, Paul's point is that circumcision, which comes in Genesis 17, which is two chapters after Genesis 15, some 14 years after Genesis 15, that's, it, was, it was before circumcision even came around that Abraham was credited with righteousness. And the circumcision was never meant to, 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 you know, it was not a condition of being credited with righteousness. It was not because Abraham had circumcision that, cred, that it was credited to him as righteousness. That because he was circumcised, he's now righteous. Circumcision was a sign of a spiritual reality where people lived every day in trust of God as their shield and their very great reward. That they lived every day in the knowledge and the trust that God will never, ever fail them. Paul writes, So then, He is the Father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And He is then also the Father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And Abraham was not justified by the law. The law would come a lot of centuries after the time of Abraham, some five centuries or so later, and so Paul's point is, how could the law justify Abraham if it was not yet codified and delivered to the Israelites by the time that Abraham was even around? At the same time, he says, if all of the promises come by doing the law, which is what we read at the very, very beginning of this text, at the very beginning of the chapter, if it's, if it's done by law, if it's a work, then it's a wage. If all of the promises come by doing the law, then it's a wage rather than a gift. And what God is offering is a gift. But the irony is that it will never come because no one can keep the law. No one can keep the law. What you get for all of that work is not, is not the gift, but the wage. As he's going to say in Romans chapter 6 later on, the wages is death. Abraham was not justified by the law. He wasn't even around but his point is, is that Abraham believed God. And so he says in verse 16, The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, 
not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the Father of us all. Verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope. You know, he, he could have stopped right there with, with Abraham and probably made all the points that he wanted to with the church in Rome. But he does something very interesting at the very beginning of, of Romans chapter 4. You know, Abraham is this exemplary fellow. Genesis chapter 22, God comes to him and says, This son that I promised you, now remember what he said in Genesis chapter 15. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. In other words, don't be afraid, Abraham. I will never fail you. But the son has always been getting in the way, right? He's, he's left home and hearth and family and has traveled to the promised land. He has done all of these. He has just been so obedient, obedient, obedient. But the one thing is the Son. And at a certain age that Isaac gets to, Abraham is told by God to go to a mountain, and I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice the Son to me. And the most amazing thing happens, Abraham has somehow gotten his mind around Genesis 15, verses 1 and 2. I will never fail you. And he does exactly what God said. And you know how the story ends. There's this great revelation of an attribute of God that God will provide. That God will provide. That the, the problem of sin is going to be a problem that every human being is going to, be, is going to have to deal with. That the problem of sin is going to be the plague that is upon our soul and upon our mind and upon our heart. It is the sin that is going to blacken all of our relationships and is going to darken our, our, our life and our, our reason and the way that we get things done. It is going to be the problem. But God is going to provide the way out. And He does it. But David, on the other hand, he's the champ. He is the guy that loves God. In, in, in 1 Samuel and in Acts, those two places, Old Testament and New Testament, David is the guy that is after the heart of God. He loves God, but he's so wretched. I mean, when you think about David, he's up and then he's down and then he's over here. And, but the whole time, he has such a heart for God. But he's a sinner. In a lot of ways, he's, he's seen differently from Abraham. Abraham is this guy of faith, the father of the faith. David is the great king, but you know what he did? Turned about 50 there in Second Samuel in the springtime when kings and their armies are going out to war, middle age, maybe a little bit of uh, mid-age, middle-age blues sets in, stays home been sleeping all day, gets up in the afternoon, he's walking around and he sees this beautiful woman taking a shower, taking a bath on her rooftop. And his eyes are fixed. And he asks about her. The servants say, uh, red light, King David, she's married. Red light, King David, she's not only married, but she's married to one of your mighty men, a guy by the name of Uriah. He says, go and get her. You know the story. They have their affair. She becomes pregnant. He tries to hide it in all of these different ways. Ends up 
ordering the death of her husband on the front line and involving all kinds of people to do it. I mean, the, the duplicity is just enormous. And Uriah is dead. And the, 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 uh, the chapter ends with these words, And the Lord saw the thing that David did, and he was, he was upset. And Nathan goes and confronts David. And David, who is this man after God's heart, the leader of God's people, is just absolutely crushed. He writes some psalms. And one of them is this. Psalm 32. Because what David is realizing is that his only hope, his only hope, is in God. It's not in himself. He loves God. He has a heart for God. He will, If God wanted him to live in a cardboard box, he would do it as much as he could. But he realizes that he is a sinner, not just a sinner. He is an incredibly profound sinner. Not just, not just a, a, a cheating on one of his best friends with, with the guy's wife and having an immoral sexual relationship, but then trying to cover up the sin, that leading to death, and all of the other things that take place. He realizes who he is as a human being. And he too, somehow, has figured it out. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I'm your very great reward. And, it, and it's David. It's David who writes a couple of psalms about this whole thing that happened with, with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, the first two verses that's quoted in Romans chapter 4. And this is what he says. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What David is saying is that the only hope that he has is the hope that is found in God. The hope that God will cover his sin. That somehow his transgressions will be forgiven. That somehow he will be restored. That somehow that God will embrace him even though as a human being he is guilty of all of that. And what he understands is God's faithfulness. God is incredibly angry with David. This sin is horrible. The child dies. The sword never departs from David's house. He pays the consequences. But what David finds that sustains him is the faithfulness of God. That he can look at a righteous God and know this God is faithful. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And... You know, when we when we sing songs, uh, there's there's a lot of things that happen, right? I mean, when we sing a song, we it's an expression of the the joy we might have in our hearts. Sometimes when we sing a song, there are words that trigger something good happening inside of us. When we sing, we encourage one another. When we sing, we draw close to each other because of that's what singing does. That's the way that God has wired our mind. That when we sing together, it somehow ties us closer together. 
But sometimes when we sing, what happens is that we have a moment of clarity. We have a moment of clarity where we begin to see that there have got to be some serious changes in our life because, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one thing to intellectually acknowledge that God exists. And it's another thing altogether to stop holding Him at arm's distance, at arm's length. And to draw near to Him as He draws near to you. That's the product of the Gospel. To be able to do that. To be able to draw near to God and for Him to draw near to you in such a way that your life is completely reordered. Completely reordered. That, that, it, that it might be an opportunity during the singing of that song as you think all of those thoughts about the Gospel and about God and the truth that is found in God's Word that you begin to do business with God's Word in a way that you have never done it before and you begin to see the truth of your own life, that your heart is full of idols and that you really do believe that there's a God but you really do want to put your trust in Him as the one who will never fail you. If that describes you tonight, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front to pray for you or to counsel you or whatever you need. Tonight, they're here to do it. For the rest of us, it's an opportunity once again to praise God. Let's stand and do this together. Let's sing.